would encourage you to turn to Matthew 13 this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of a sort of a sucker for a good story. Um, in our age of technology, it can be a little bit distracting sometimes because I can be right in the height of, you know, concentration and focus and, and working on something, getting things done. But then I'll hear or read or something will come through my email and it'll be the start of a good story. And within moments, I'm moved to pure distraction by that. And as a child, one of my most cherished memories, like many, is having the privilege of growing up near my grandparents. And uh, they were children of the 30s and 40s, which seemed like worlds apart from my time, at least when I was a kid. And there was no shortage of stories to be told that took me back uh, to those days. And my grandfather, particularly my mom's dad, had and still does has an excellent memory. So the details of his childhood adventures with his twin brother, uh, they, they come across to this day as crystal clear. I love a good story. Now, throughout Matthew so far, we have seen Jesus put on display as a master teacher, and he is the master teacher. Now, if you remember way back a year ago, a little more than a year now, when we did the introduction to Matthew, you might remember me mentioning that there are six major teaching discourses in Matthew. That is six major sections of the book, which are just Jesus teaching. And Matthew is kind of organized around those six sections. Now, we've already seen two of them up until this point. The first big one was Matthew 5 through 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And then another one, which was shorter, but still a teaching discourse, was Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends out his disciples for that first time, and he gives a lot of teaching on persecution and the difficulties of discipleship. And we get a clue that Matthew is kind of organizing his book around these things because after all these occurrences, he writes something like, when Jesus had finished these sayings or when Jesus had ended this teaching, and then he moves on to a new section. Well, Matthew 13 is the next section, and we find that at the end of this chapter or the beginning of chapter 14, um, after these parables, Matthew writes that, when Jesus had finished these parables, and then the subject sort of changes. In this section, this major teaching section in Matthew 13 is usually known as the kingdom parables, the kingdom parables. Now, we've all heard the word parable. We're familiar with many of Jesus' parables. In fact, uh, some of the most gripping and picturesque stories that Jesus gives are his parables, and I believe probably one of the more famous ones and the more and the most uh, palpable that you get into the story is the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. We'll start this morning by asking, what is a parable? What is a parable? Well, the word Matthew uses when he writes parable is a Greek word which means to cast alongside. That is, it's a truth or a, a message that is cast alongside a story from life in order to deliver that truth or message in a unique way. Now, a parable is different from other kinds of teaching stories. There are other kinds. For instance, in our own culture, we have the very famous Aesop's fables, right? And you hear those stories of the tortoise and the hare and that kind of thing. But while a fable is a teaching story, a parable is different in that a parable is not 
fantastic. It doesn't include, you know, talking animals and things that would never happen in real life. A parable is a very real life possibility, an everyday occurrence. A parable is also different than an allegory. An allegory is a story in which nearly every detail of the story has a parallel meaning to it. For instance, um, the Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most well-known illustrations of an allegory in English literature where almost every detail in Bunyan's account of the Pilgrim's Progress has a parallel meaning having to do with the Christian life. But the parables are not necessarily like that. Most of Jesus' parables have, have one major element or one theme that he's communicating, and the exceptions to that are the cases in which he tells us exactly what the details mean. We'll see that today in this first parable. But for the most part, they're meant to be a little bit oblique. They're meant to be not so right angle. They're a little bit difficult to see at times. And that's one of the interesting things actually about Jesus' parables is that they're not really illustrations in which a story or a, uh, a, little, a little side thing is added to make a truth more clear. They're actually teaching tools of revelation to those with ears to hear and eyes to see. And we find that the meaning of Jesus' parables are concealed from many in his day, much like the truth and the true depth of God's word is concealed from many even today. Now, one more thing. In the Old Testament, a parallel teaching device that we see a lot of that is similar to parables are the Proverbs. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is, was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word for Proverbs was parables. So we could almost say in the Hebrew mind, the idea of a parable included the Proverbs, and the Proverbs are parables in their own right, not that they're given in full story form, but that they deliver truth in comparative and picturesque ways. There are sayings and aphorisms and even riddles at times that are used throughout the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't reinventing the wheel here. He's really carrying on the tradi a tradition of God's message going forth in these ways that are simply not on the surface. Again, Jesus is a master teacher and he knows what he's doing. Now, the fact that the meaning of parables is not always on the surface is important, especially for this group of, of parables, because this is a time of transition and also a time of declaration. Jesus at this point has faced severe opposition and even outright rejection by the Jewish leadership and by the ruling class, and one of the judgment factors of that is that he uses parables to actually conceal the truth of the kingdom from them. So in Matthew 13, it's interesting that all of these parables, and we're not going to look at them all today, they all have to do with the kingdom. And they also have to do somewhat with a progression. We'll see this in the weeks to come, but just to whet your appetite a little bit. The first parable is really talking about the beginnings or the, the seed form of the kingdom. The next parables after that show how the enemy seeks to thwart the progress of the kingdom. 
Two after that show that despite the enemy's best attacks, there are many who still consider the kingdom of God their greatest treasure, and they seek it diligently even within the opposition. And the final parable in Matthew 13 has to do with the consummation of the kingdom. That is, when all is called into account and judgment and the righteous and the unrighteous are separated. So all of these parables show us something about God's kingdom, which is no surprise because that is the message that Jesus came on the scene with. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. That's the message that John the Baptist gave as the forerunner, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the main message of Jesus' ministry, and especially it's the main theme of Matthew's gospel. To miss the kingdom of God was to miss Jesus, and really to miss Jesus was to miss the message of the kingdom. And what this first parable teaches us is that the kingdom starts in the hearts of men and women. Like a seed that is planted and sprouts and takes root and grows and fruits, that is how the kingdom of this majestic king is established and spreads. Not by force, not by political might, not by false claims of authority or power, but in the hearts of people. So that's sort of the big idea you'll see if you're following along in your bulletin on the back. The parable of the sower, which is what we're going to look at today, shows us that the seeds of the kingdom root and grow in the hearts of men. And we can ask this question, has the seed of God's word taken root in your heart? Let's pause for prayer before we get into this passage today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for this time of study. I pray that as we begin to look at these at these parables this morning, this first of seven here in Matthew 13, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that you would bless us for listening, and may we listen and follow you and see the treasure and the wonder and the majesty of your kingdom and the mystery of how it begins even in our hearts. Help us now to understand and use this word May it produce fruit even among us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to go a little bit out of order this morning because this first parable in Matthew 13 is unique because Jesus tells the parable to a large crowd. Then his disciples ask him a question and he gives them the answer to the question. And then he explains the parable to us. And it's helpful that Jesus explains really these first couple parables, as we'll see, because he's kind of giving us some training wheels a little bit uh, to get off the ground as we go forward in these things. But I want to start in the middle of our passage today, beginning in verse number 10, because Jesus really answers the question there, why parables at all? Why parables at all? So that's important to us. And I want to start there. So let's read beginning in verse number 10 as we start this morning. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, 
Hearing, they do not hear, nor they understand. Indeed, is in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So why parables? To this point, Jesus had given many illustrations, many stories and comparisons that are parable-like in fact, I have even referred to some probably as parables because they are parable-like, like the story about the demon that went out and came back in. They're like parables because they're in the broad sense of the term, a truth alongside a story. But this section in Matthew really starts a specific kind of parable teaching by Jesus. These parables have not only a specific subject matter, the kingdom of God, but they also have very specific recipients. And we're going to get into this first parable in a moment. But the first one is important and unique because between the telling and explanation, Jesus gives these words of answer to the disciples' question. Why do you speak to them in parables? Now, keep in mind, the disciples, as Hebrews, when they said parables, they may have been thinking more than just the stories they may have been thinking of the Proverbs and the aphorisms and the mysteries and the riddles. So they really are asking Jesus probably, why are you speaking to these people in such cryptic language? Why are you speaking in ways that's hard to understand? And that is a great question. As we've already seen, there are some of Jesus' teachings that are a little bit difficult to understand, a little bit cryptic and not immediately clear. So why does he do that? Well, we find the answer, according to Jesus, has to do with God's grace of revelation, with his purpose to reveal and to conceal. Just as we saw at the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus said this, I thank you in prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And we learned in that passage, that, that great passage of invitation. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We learned in that great passage of invitation that it's part of God's gracious will to both reveal and conceal truth. Now, that would be categorized as one of those things that's difficult to understand, but it is a truth indeed. There's divine cause behind that. There's divine purpose behind it. And certainly there are human causes behind it as well. But the fact remains that these parables that we're going to get into were meant in part not just to clarify truth to some, but also to muddy it up for others. Now, if you're thinking that I'm being a little obtuse and maybe misleading you, we have to look at the rest of Jesus' words here and the words from Isaiah that he quotes from to explain himself. He quotes from Isaiah 6 in this 
in this answer to the disciples. In Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, Isaiah, the prophet, was given some of the hardest instruction that any prophet would ever receive because he was told that he was going to preach and preach and preach to people that would not hear, would not see, would not understand. They would not change. They would not believe. They would not grow. Their understanding would be closed. Their eyes would be shut. Their ears would be clogged and their minds would be set against the truth that he would proclaim. Now, two years ago, if God had given me some sort of revelation that I was going to come to Ira Baptist Church and nobody was ever going to listen or understand or believe anything that the Bible said, I probably would have hightailed it the other direction. That's not easy news to hear, yet that's kind of what Isaiah was told about his own preaching. And in fact, when we read Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 from the Old Testament, it makes it even stronger. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. We see again that there is an element of people's eyes being shut and ears blocked, but one of the instructions to Isaiah was to make the hearts dull, the ears heavy, and the eyes blind. That is, in the continual preaching of God's word, it would actually weary them more and shut their eyes and ears and their mind to the truth. And that's why Jesus says back in our passage in verses 11 through 13, To you, speaking to his disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Much like in Matthew 11, where God says actively conceals the truth from the wise and the the prudent. Here he says, by his parables, he is actively concealing it from those who have their eyes shut and their ears blocked to the message of the kingdom. Now, this is important because it comes right after one of the largest rejections and blasphemies by the Pharisees. It's sort of reached its crescendo, and now the Pharisees' opposition will spiral all the way down until Jesus' crucifixion. Parables are in part a concealing tool of Jesus as much as a revealing tool, at least in that time, to those with their eyes shut and their ears closed. God's gracious will includes both revealing and concealing, and that's a truth that's hard to understand but it's one we can't get around in scripture. And we can speak until we're blue in the face about different reasons and causes and purposes for that. But ultimately, it is a truth we have to accept and reckon with, even if it is difficult. Now, Jesus does not make this entirely bleak, though, because in verses 16 and 17, there's a huge element of blessing. He says to his disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
It is just as much as it is God's will to conceal at times. It is a gracious blessing of God's will when he reveals his truth, when someone does see and hear and understand God's truth. There were mysteries, secrets, and parables all throughout God's revelatory history. Uh, Jesus said, there are many prophets who long to see what you see, specifically here, the message and the outpouring of the kingdom, but they didn't see it. But we do see elements of that. For instance, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is told a mystery. Daniel 2, 18, uh, he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel was a prophet who was blessed with certain mysteries revealed to him about Christ and his coming that were not revealed to other prophets. Similarly, in both Colossians and Ephesians, Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel, the fact that now Christ is in us and that the gospel is available to all who would believe. These are mysteries, not because they are misunderstood or still concealed, but because they were once hidden, but now revealed. And the blessing of having God's truth, these wonderful mysteries revealed, to know them, understand them, accept it, and bear fruit from them is a blessing, which is why Jesus says in this sort of beatitude, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. So parables do conceal from some, but for those with ears to ear, as Jesus says, they enrich the goodness of God's word to the hearer. Okay. With that being said, let's get into this first parable. So go back to verse number one. Verse number one says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And a great crowd gathered about, great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. We'll stop there for a second. Now, sometimes Matthew will say something happened then or after that this took place, which really could mean any point after the previous event. But here we see that it's the same day that Jesus went out of the house that he was just in, which was the house in which all of this controversy was taking place, the house where he had the conversation with the Pharisees, the house where his mother and his brothers were trying to get in to get him, and he gave that great teaching at the end of the chapter on becoming the family of God by doing the will of the Father. He had piqued the interest of many, apparently, again. So we see here that great crowds, which we've seen that term before again, it's crowds of crowds, lots of crowds were following him, so much so that he went out, probably on the shore of Capernaum, and got on a boat to give himself a little space and distance to speak. And what Jesus does next is indicative of his teaching nature. It says, seeing the crowds, or sorry, uh, great crowds gathered around him, verse two, so that he got into a boat and sat down. Now that reminds me of Matthew 5, 1, the beginning of the first great teaching 
uh, element in Matthew where seeing the crowds, it says, he went up to the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Jesus was getting ready to teach and he took the typical position of the teacher in that day, which was to sit down while his listeners stood. Now we could try that today if you'd like, but uh, perhaps culturally it would be met with opposition. So I won't suggest that. But either way, we are told that he sat down and he told them many things in parables, starting with this one. Let's just read it, beginning in verse number three. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose... They were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain or fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And here we have Jesus' first proper parable in Matthew. And it's a story of the kingdom and of seeds. Jesus was a storytelling teacher. He was a man who was well acquainted with his surroundings, with his culture. He wasn't cloistered off by himself, secluded in his own little world, away from the experiences of the people. He lived among the people, ate among the people, shared the daily burdens of the people. When he told his stories, he could speak to what was real, what was known, and what was experienced. And he does that here quite simply with this parable of sowing seeds. Now, in some of the parables to come, this would be the time where where we would set out to find what's the one main element or detail that Jesus is trying to get across with this parable. But in this case, as we've already mentioned, Jesus gives the explanation And it has much to do with what we just talked about in verses 10 through 17. So let's jump ahead to Jesus' explanation, and we'll work off of that. Verse number 18. He says, Here then, based on what he had told the disciples about seeing and not seeing, hearing and not seeing, having truth revealed or concealed, here then, he says, the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. Let's stop there for a minute. At this point, it it seems that Jesus is only speaking to his disciples. If he shared that first parable to the great crowds from the boat with a loud voice, now he has turned to answer his disciples' question, and he's told them, It's been given to you to know these secrets and mysteries. And now, probably in a quieter voice, he gives them this explanation. Now, Jesus had just told the parable to the great crowds with hundreds, no doubt, perhaps even thousands of listeners. And then he tells a parable about how there are all kinds of listeners. Four kinds, actually, we'll see. There are all kinds of hearers of the message. Even at the end of the parable, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now he explains that the parable he gives 
was about the crowds and everyone else who hears these truths. Four kinds of hearers, but really it's more than just four kinds of hearers. We find when we dig in a little bit, it's really four kinds of hearts. You heard those words where we started in verse number 19. That the what seed was sown, it was the seed that was sown in the heart. The seed that was sown in the heart. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The seed is sown in the hearts of men. The seed of the message of the kingdom is sown into the hearts of men and women. Now, Jesus has told us a lot about the heart in Matthew, hasn't he? He's told us that within the heart, we hate and murder. Within the heart, we hold treasures of what we long for and desire. The heart is the inner man, who we truly are. And the heart has been so important all along because we see that it is within the very hearts of men and women that the kingdom of God is planted, takes root, grows, and produces fruit. Now, Luke, later on in, in the gospel, he's, Jesus is answering a question of the Pharisees. In Luke 17, 19, or 20 and 21 says this. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. So the place where the seed is planted is in the hearts of men. But what is the seed? Well, our first clue is from verse number 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom. That is what the seed is, apparently in this version of the story. In Luke's account of this same parable, he gives maybe even a little bit more broad definition, and it may be even more applicable to us, because it says in Luke 8.11, in this explanation, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So the beginning of the kingdom then is the seed of God's word spread in the hearts of men. What a picture. What an image. The, the outpouring of God's kingdom on earth is not a political overthrow, not a battle or an uprising, not a revolution, not fire and brimstone even, as we've seen before. It's the word of God being spread as seeds in the hearts of men. With that in mind, Jesus gives us then four different kinds of hearers, or if you would, four different kinds of hearts. The first one we see in verse 19 is the stubborn heart. The stubborn heart. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The path is that well-worn area where the dirt and the, the dirt and the underlayment is pressed down so that the seed just sits on the pathway. The stubborn heart is a hard heart. 
The stubborn heart is the heart of Pharaoh who refused to let God's people go despite the plagues. The stubborn heart is the heart of the Pharisees that refused to believe in Jesus even when faced with irrefutable signs and proof. The hard heart is the one that cannot, will not believe. It's interesting, though, because the seed, it says, makes it to the heart, but it finds an impenetrable barrier. And lest it remain for any case of softening, Jesus says, the evil one quickly snatches it away, whether that's by indifference or forgetfulness or replacing it with some other message. It's given no chance. It hits the hard surface. It's taken away. There's no sprouting, no root, no growth. For sake of time, we won't turn this, but if you read in Romans 1, Paul speaks and describes the kind of progression of a person who continually so rejects God's revelation of himself that eventually they are given up or given over to their own desires. A hard heart is a heart that is in total opposition, often violent and outspoken, regardless of the validity of the truth being proclaimed. We read on, though, and see next a shallow heart. Look at verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The second kind of heart is very common. Regretfully, I, I think we see it rather often. The seed of God's word penetrates seemingly into the heart, but only to a shallow depth. And the soil is rocky so that the seed cannot take root in good soil. And as hardship comes, Jesus says here specifically on account of the word. And pause for a moment. You remember the times that Jesus talks about persecution. He always talks about persecution on his account or on on his behalf. That's the same thing here. It's not necessarily just difficult times. It's persecution on account or against the word of the kingdom, the word of Christ. But the seed sprouts and begins to grow. But as soon as the message became more difficult or the prospect looks grim, the seed dies and withers. Jesus had many of these in his own ministry, eager followers who went away sad when the message became harder or the outlook looked dark. So it should not be a surprise to us that there are many of these kinds of followers today as well. And we must guard against a shallow, rocky heart. A mere profession of faith is not ultimate proof of a person's spiritual life. A heart can show some signs of initial life while not holding any true life or growth. Thirdly, we see the strangled heart. Look at verse number 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it, prov- and it proves unfruitful. This third kind of heart is one that we also see played out in society. 
Now, it's not the only case, but one example that we see is sometimes you'll hear of a, a famous individual or a celebrity who has a conversion experience. They come to Christ, and initially there's some acceptance, but before long it seems that the same vices and cares and patterns have choked the growth out. It's interesting that one of the reasons Jesus gives here for this happening is the deceitfulness of riches. Self-sufficiency is a blight on the seed of Christ's kingdom. Self-sufficiency of, of wealth or of strength all tell us that we do not need what Christ gives us, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 19 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You remember back in the Beatitudes, one of the ways where Jesus started us out on this journey of learning about his kingdom is he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. A poor in spirit attitude is one that comes to the kingdom knowing that we are not self-sufficient in any right, whether through our riches, through our religion, or even through our own obedience. Self-sufficiency doesn't have to be financial. It can be security in any form or facet that, that strangles the seed, that gets us to believe the lie that we are sufficient. This is the strangled heart. And finally, Jesus gives us the good news about the soft heart. Verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Jesus gives us this beautiful picture of a soft and fertile heart, a heart that not only gladly receives the word, like the stubborn heart, or, or like the, uh, uh, the stony heart, it not only gladly receives it, not only does it hang around for a while, like the strangled heart, but this one receives it, it takes root, it grows, and not only does it grow, it produces fruit. Now, Jesus has given us a lot of truth in this parable. But if there's one big point that's coming across, it's that, that the decisive factor between the other three kinds of hearts or hearers, if we want to go back to that, and the soft or good heart is the presence of genuine fruit. In every other case, whether it was stubborn, shallow, or strangled, the seed did no ultimate good and the person fell away from the message. But within the soft heart, there is fruit. And fruit is what Christ desires in his kingdom. Fruit is what indicates real discipleship, real spiritual life. So we could ask the question then, what is good fruit? Well, right in the passage, the first and most obvious good fruit is that despite the cares of the world, despite the deceitfulness of riches, 
despite the attempts of the evil one to snatch away, the faith remains. Genuine, lasting, and persevering faith is the first and most obvious fruit that we bear. The fact that we keep believing and following despite the world, the flesh, and the devil is a sign that the seed of the word fell on soft and fertile ground. In John 15, Jesus speaks much about fruit in that great passage about the vine and the branches. And he says this in verse number eight, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there it is. It's the proof of discipleship in bearing fruit. But he goes on later in the passage in verse 16 to say this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It glorifies God that we bear fruit, but the purpose that Christ chose his people is that they would keep bearing fruit, fruit that remains, fruit that doesn't flower for a moment and fall away, but fruit that keeps on fruiting. Now, in that same passage in John 15, Jesus goes on to speak about how our love for one another is one of the primary fruits, maybe the first fruit that we bear. And it's not only love, because if we take it a step further, Paul gives us an entire list of the fruits of righteousness in Galatians 5. And he starts with love, where he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And again, notice that love there is first. But also notice that the rest of these fruits of the Spirit have not just to do with with not sinning or, or being moral, but they are positive fruits of righteousness that we bear out before others. We bear out joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, not just when we're by ourselves. That's one thing. But when we're face-to-face with somebody else in a relationship, in a conversation, in a difficulty, and we bear out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is fruit of the Spirit, and it's fruit of the seed of God's Word. These are the fruits that transform homes. These are the fruits that transform families and churches and relationships, even societies. And notice they're fruits from God. Fruits that come when the seed of the word penetrates and takes root in the hearts of men. Why is Christ's message of the kingdom so important? Because it's the only way that can truly transform. Why is the heart so important? Because the heart is not just the inner man. It's the seedbed of God's kingdom spreading. And it's the place where real transformation takes place. In the worship portion of our service, Dennis read from Psalm 119. I want to read a couple of those verses again. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we ask the question, has God's word taken root in your heart? Has it produced the fruit of righteousness? And you may ask, well, what is the hundredfold? What is the sixtyfold? What is the thirtyfold? You may say, well, I, I want to be a hundredfold Christian. And I would say to you, if you're a thirtyfold Christian, it is a miracle of God's grace that the fruit of the word of God has sprouted and rooted and grown in your life. Not all of us will be a, an Apostle Paul or a, a David Livingston or a Billy Graham, but if we produce fruit at all, we are given assurance by Jesus here that the seed has taken root in good soil. The seeds of the kingdom root and grow in the hearts of men. Has the seed of God's word taken root in your heart? Lord, thank you for this, this first parable. Thank you for giving us the explanation. Thank you for tying it together with the rest of scripture, with your teaching. Thank you, Lord, for being our teacher and our master. And also, as we saw last week, our, our brother. And Lord, we do give you glory and, and great thanksgiving for the fruit that you have borne in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that even as this message goes forth today, that there would be hearers who have hearts that have been tilled and prepared and softened to receive it. And that also, even in our own lives as believers, as we walk day by day with you, that we would guard against a stubborn heart, a shallow heart, or a strangled heart. Because we don't just need your word initially for salvation, but we need it daily to walk. So may we receive it there well also. Use your word, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.